Gangary the Podcast is made possible by the Ashland University Journalism and Digital Media Department. As Ohio's only converged media program, Ashland JDM is training tomorrow's journalists and media creators for media careers in the 21st century. For more information, visit Ashland University's Journalism and Digital Media Department online at ashland.edu JDM. Or head to the JDM blog at ashlandmedia.blogspot.com. This is Matt Tullos. On this Gangry the Podcast, we talk with Jason Fagone, a Philadelphia-based journalist who writes about science, sports, and culture for Wired Magazine and Philadelphia Magazine. Fagone's work has also appeared in GQ, Esquire, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Slate, and Deadspin. Fagone's most recent story in Philadelphia Magazine was about a cancer researcher who has found a way to treat leukemia using genetically modified T-cells. He also has a book coming out in November, Ingenious, a true story of invention, automotive daring, and the race to revive America follows the lives of several people as they attempt to engineer a radically new kind of car. We've linked to several Jason stories on our website, www.gangrythepodcast.com. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Matt. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's talk about the Carl June story first. Can you tell me who June is and, and kind of what he's done? Yeah, so Carl June is a, uh, an immunologist at uh, Penn. He has kind of a tinkerer's temperament. He's a really interesting guy. He has, he's a guy who's he's a doctor, but he's also an inventor. He has kind of a fascination with inventing tools to make new kinds of inventions possible. And I think some of this he absorbed from his father, who was a, who was a chemical engineer um, in uh, San Francisco Bay Area. But, um, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes from his interesting background. He was trained as a Navy uh, sailor for a time. He, he went into the uh, Navy during the Vietnam War. Um, he trained for a time on a nuclear sub. Uh, he thought he was going to uh, be on a nuclear sub, but it turned out that the war ended. They didn't need him uh, to be a sailor anymore, so they let him go to medical school. And uh, so he went to medical school, and the Navy's idea was that he would train to perform bone marrow transplants because if there was ever a, a radiation leak on a submarine, they would need doctors to give sailors new immune systems, um, which is basically what a bone marrow transplant does. So, so he did that. Uh, and he saw these sort of tragic uh, 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 deaths from bone marrow transplants. You know, I think it's something like one in five die. But he also saw amazing recoveries. Uh, and he got a sense of the power of, of the immune system. Uh, and from there, he moved on to work at a lab uh, at the Navy studying HIV. Um, and so he got to see the immune system from a different angle by studying HIV. And uh, he got to the point where, um, for professional reasons and also personal reasons, he wanted to start to work on cancer. He, um, I think it was in 1996, his wife was diagnosed with, uh, with cancer. And um, he wasn't allowed to work on cancer at the Navy because they only funded uh, infectious disease research. So he found a way to get an appointment at, uh, at an academic center, top academic center at Penn. He moved there uh, with a couple of members of his team, and he started a uh, translational science lab with the idea of trying to uh, take basic science uh, advances in the study of cancer and translate them into uh, new and useful drugs as quickly as possible. 
And uh, so uh, we kind of pick up the story. We actually start the story with uh, with a with one patient, Walter Keller, uh, who is going through um, one of these experimental treatments that Carl June has come up uh, come up with. Um, why did you choose Keller as the the main character, at least from the patient standpoint, to kind of tell the story through? Yeah, well, Walt was uh, Walt was a fascinating guy. He was kind of the star patient for for the trial. He's a 58 year old carpenter from from California, and um, he had been dying of end stage leukemia. He basically run out of all other medical options when he heard about this uh, clinical trial of a radical new therapy for his type of leukemia. And uh, the trial was in Philadelphia. His family helped him enroll him, and he he flew across the country with his sister. Uh, to take this huge risk on a last-ditch intervention. Um, and it turned out that this therapy, which was 20 years in the making and, and the result of this very intense exploration and dogged pursuit by a team of doctors, including Carl June, uh, ended up removing every trace of cancer from his body, as far as the doctors could tell. Pounds and pounds of tumor just blasted away, obliterated, wildly successful treatment. Um, and so the story is about uh, Walt's journey through the trial, but it's also about the doctors and, and their struggle over 20 years to get people to, to believe in this radical new kind of therapy, which a lot of people said would never work. And I, I guess I, I, I chose Walt because he was, he was chosen for me in terms of um, Penn uh, giving me a patient to, to follow. Um, the original idea for the story was, you know, I had read, I had read an article in the New York Times uh, years ago about the first three patients in the trial. Um, and the, the story called it a breakthrough. Basically, um, the, the treatment had put two of these three, first three patients into remission. And it, it, was, it was such a dramatic result that it kind of grabbed me. Um, and, and then the nature of the treatment was, was fascinating too. It, was, it wasn't a vaccine or a new kind of chemotherapy or radiation. Instead, it was an application of something called um, gene therapy. So basically, the doctors had taken these patients' own immune cells, then transformed them genetically in the lab to give them new powers, and then infused them back into the patient's blood. And the advantage of that approach is that you're, you're starting with something really powerful. You're starting with a native cell, and you're just tweaking it. So in theory, if it worked, it would be a lot less traumatic than chemo or, or a bone marrow transplant. You just give a patient some of his own cells, and the cells kind of go to work. Um, the problem was that it had never worked in cancer before. Doctors would uh, infuse these genetically modified cells. The cells would just kind of die in the blood. They wouldn't do anything. Um, and it had seemed like the whole approach was a failure until this trial at, at Penn, uh, where it seemed to have worked spectacularly. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I could find a patient in the trial and kind of follow him through uh, start to finish? And I'd be able to talk about what it was like to be a patient in a, in a cutting-edge medical trial, which I think is interesting, and, uh, and also talk about the science itself. Um, I've, I've always kind of been, been interested in trying to do that, trying to weave uh, uh, personal stories with, with science. I don't really know where that ambition comes from. I, I read a lot of Kurt Vonnegut when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, Kurt Vonnegut's brother was a scientist, so there's, there's a lot of science in Vonnegut. Uh, it's kind of the dystopian side of it. You know, you read Cat's Cradle and there's Ice Nine, the, uh, the strange uh, rearrangement of water that, that, that can freeze water uh, into ice. Uh, and then, you know, you read people like Tracy Kidder and John McPhee where they are, they're just incredible at blending, blending science and, and narrative. And, 
and it, it just seemed to me like if, if you could do that, if you blend science and narrative, it's it's like the coolest thing that you that you can do. And this just seemed like an opportunity to uh, to try to do that, to tell a, a human story while also uh, talking about something uh, important. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the 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 difficult thing about science, any type of science and technology writing, which you do a lot of, is making it so regular people can understand it as well. And this story is is what they were doing is so complex. Um, how how do you go about kind of telling that in a way that that the average reader, is, you know, somebody who's not a an oncologist or or a geneticist is going to understand? Yeah, that's a great question. So so the the challenge is really getting the science right without making it jargony, right? Because whenever you jargon is jargon is bad. Jargon will just stop a reader. And but whenever you veer away from the accepted jargon and put it in your own words, there's there's a risk that you're getting it wrong, right? I mean, it's like my my daughter. I have a five year old daughter. She asked me the other day uh, how space is made, right? We were so we were on a plane and she was looking up at the sky out the window, and and she asked me how how is space made. Uh, and I said, first of all, that's a really good question. Uh, yeah, I was very proud that's of it. That's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question, right? Like people have worked their entire careers to understand the answer right. to the question. Uh, and then I started to try to explain the, the Big Bang. So I said, so I said there was a tiny seed, right? And it was really tiny. And I made my fingers really tiny. And then, and then the seed expanded, and I put my hands out so, so fast that you can't even imagine. And then it cooled. And I just kind of looked at her, and I could tell that she wasn't understanding. <laughs> and I said, before the seed, there was nothing. You have to understand there was nothing. And then I realized I was confusing her because um, the nothing from the never-ending story is what she knows of, of the nothing. Right. Uh, so, so I completely failed to ex- explain this to her. And this is, this is something that, you know, I'm 35 years old. I've, I've had uh, science classes in, in high school and college. I, I, I should feel like I understand the Big Bang. It's a very important concept, right? But... The point being, you think you can understand something, but when you try to explain it to someone, you realize you don't understand it uh, as well as you need to. And there was a, a lot of a lot of uh, that process in writing this story, just sort of uh, really just going back to the doctors again and again and asking them about the details, asking them, okay, what did the cells look like at this point in the process? What did they look like at this point? How did you transport the cells from this place to this place? Um, you know, is this metaphor accurate? Uh, you know, how did you do the test to determine if there was still cancer? What, what did that look like when you did that? What did the results look like? Just kind of over and over and over uh, until I was confident that, um, you know, my metaphors were still scientifically accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you do a good job in this. And, and like I said, that's really such a, a difficult thing to do anytime you're doing any type of science writing. Um, how long did you spend on the story and like how much access did you have to the doctors? Because I know obviously they're very busy guys. And and I guess to that extent, how much access did you have to Walt as well? Yeah, it was, it was about a year and a half, actually. Uh, I wasn't working on it the entire time, but... Uh, from the time that I did my first interview with Carl June uh, to the time that the story was published, I think it was about about a year and a half. And it took that long um, because I was waiting for them to connect me with a patient. I think uh, I think that they thought that uh, an appropriate patient might be the fourth, fifth, or, or sixth patients. But I, I think that a couple of those were three of the eventual 12 who were, who were non-responders to the therapy. So they were waiting for a patient who had responded. 
Um, and it turned out that, that that patient was Walt. So what happened was I, I started by uh, interviewing the scientists. Um, I, I, I sat down with all of them, talked with, with them about uh, the history of the work, uh, the 20-year history of it. Um, I talked with them about the, the trial and some of the challenges of it. And um, at that point, I, I, I waited for them to connect me to Walt. When they did, I flew out to uh, California and spent uh, a day with him and his family. And he was so, he was so interesting and, and so cool that I, I remember I rescheduled my return plane flight uh, so that I could spend a couple more days out there. Uh, I mean, he was just, sometimes, you know this, Matt, I'm sure, you, sometimes you just meet a, a, a person that you're writing about and they, and they turn out to be wildly uh, better and more interesting than you had, had ever expected. And uh, you realize that you have gotten really lucky. And it was like that with Walt. I mean, he took me, he took me to his baseball time and he took me to his, uh, to his uh, uh, doctor's office, introduced me to all his nurses. Um, you know, and, and he and Nancy really, uh, his sister, really sat down uh, and told me the story start to finish uh, over the course of about two days. And from that point, um, it was really a process of, uh, once I had the, the story of, of Walt's journey through the trial, it was a process of going back to the doctors, checking his story against uh, their version of events and trying to make sure uh, that I had the science right, that all of the details were correct, um, and that uh, everything was kind of uh, kind of fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to Walt, I mean, he he has an amazing story. Just not only in in the way he beat um, leukemia, but just in his his life story too. I remember circling at one point in time. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, how I can't believe this guy has gone through this, uh, especially with 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 what happened to his mother. Yeah, uh, uh, that that, was, that surprised me. He uh, Walt's mother was murdered when he was 14 years old. Uh, murdered by his stepmother, uh, stepfather, sorry, uh, who had uh, mental issues and had had gotten out of a mental facility. Uh, Walt was home at the time. He was uh, all of his all of his siblings were at school. He was home that day alone with his mother, and the stepfather burst through the front door of their home in California with a gun put it to Walt's uh, neck and said, um, if you move, I'll kill you. And uh, Walt did what he was told. He would always feel guilty about that, like he should have done something more. But, of course, he was just a kid. Mm -hmm. And um, he watched uh, his stepfather uh, carry his mother out to the yard. He heard uh, gunshots. And when he went out to the yard, his... um, both of them were, were laying, laying there, dying. And uh, Walt told me this story uh, with really an incredible directness. Um, you know, it was clear that he had, he had processed it over the years. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways, uh, it, it shaped the path of his life because it made him very close to his siblings mm-hmm. Uh, because they had to band together after the tragedy to take care of themselves. A- after the murder, things kind of got even worse for Walt in the sense that his alcoholic um, birth father moved back in with the family and um, used to make Walt go get him uh, fifths of whiskey in his, in his bicycle, carrying them back in his newspaper bag. Uh, so Walt had to really be kind of the man of the house when he, when he was very young. He had to uh, drop out of school, get a job. 
but it bonded him to his siblings and that that bond with especially his eldest sister Nancy proved to be really important as the trial went forward because Nancy was the one who came to Philadelphia who left her job left her family came to be by Walt's side and was there with him during what turned out to be a very uh, uh, dramatic and um, you know critical period during the trial when he was in the intensive care unit when when he was when he was sick before he got better because the way that this uh, treatment works it's uh, it provokes a very uh, uh, violent reaction inside the body and um, Walt was patient number seven so when they were treating him they didn't understand it quite as well as they understand it now and um, some of the things that were happening to Walt were um, uh, were a little bit mysterious yeah um, what was the biggest challenge with the story um, the biggest challenge was was definitely melding the science with the the narrative, making them work together, so that you never got um, you never got too much uh, science at one point. You never got too much narrative, and they kind of complemented each other. Um, I, I I think that's always always kind of tough to do, tough to find that balance. And it was also it was also tough. Uh, not not overstating the findings. I mean, there's a tendency to want to say uh, when something like this happens that there's there's been a cure or um, uh, something like that. And I, I think it's it's best to kind of let the let the facts speak for themselves. They're dramatic enough. Um, you know, I really wanted in this story to uh, you know, to not also to not make people feel like science is always like this. This is really an, an anomaly, right? Like, so the, the cartoon view of science is that it's a series of eureka moments, uh, and that's not true. It's really more of an incremental process where one study builds on the other, and especially in early stage medical studies, a lot of a lot of these studies fail. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the one of the doctors told me. Um, you know, the, the, the basic, uh, these things are, these, all of what you do pretty much is failure and you have to get used to that, uh, which is why the doctors, uh, fascinatingly to me, even, even after they got the initial, uh, uh, amazing results that these, these dying men had, had, had their tumors completely eliminated. They, they didn't celebrate. There was no moment of celebration. All they wanted was really to find, to find more data. Um, because sometimes when, uh, when you have a couple of early patients, you know, the first, the first few work and then the next, the next few fail. So they were really very careful. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of these studies end up failing, but the, the success here was so, um, special and it's so rare. Uh, and I felt like I had to point out, you know, every once in a while, there really is a eureka moment, even if it's 20 years in the making and, a couple of well-described patients can can change everything, and in in those cases, science is very human, and things like luck and courage and and bravery matter. And what I what what drew me to this story, um, and kept me working on it for a year and a half, is I felt like, you know, th there really were moments in this trial when the when the future of a cancer therapy that could affect thousands of people holds vast potential really did depend in some crucial way on the intestinal fortitude of this 58-year-old carpenter. You know, whether Walter Keller would uh, get out of intensive care, whether he would get out of the hospital with all his mental faculties intact. And, and that, to me, was really amazing. Yeah, it's a great story. Uh, 
your reporting process with a with a story like this? Do you write as you go as you report, or do you do all the reporting and then sit down and write in one burst? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, more more and more, I try to write earlier. Uh, I think you know, when I was younger, I would I would usually wait until I was done reporting. But I think it kind of helps to it helps to get an early bad draft down. So. <laughs> that uh so bad i mean so bad that like the worse the better uh and the faster the better um you know the 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 challenge is really getting yourself to not be so uh, repulsed by the words on the screen that you can that you can go forward and create the bad draft uh quickly um but it really does help to uh, to organize your thinking and, and to organize your uh, your reporting I mean, I, you know, especially because I, I try to, I'm a big believer in immersion. You know, I try to mm-hmm. spend as much, much time with the subject as I can. Um, and it's definitely the most inefficient way to report a story because you end up with all these scenes that you can't possibly use. But it's, it's also the most forgiving in a way. It's how I taught myself how to write long stories originally, just by spending a lot of time with subjects and then swimming in all that information and, and, and gradually selecting and discarding and, and shaping the story. And um, it's definitely a luxury to port that way and, and probably a luxury that's disappearing in some sense, the way the industry is heading. But, uh, but it's how I've always done it. I, I think I went through, um, I think I went through five or six distinct uh, drafts of this story um, start to finish. Yeah. Yeah, the immersion thing, it is great because you end up with so much stuff, um, and then it's daunting to actually try to decide what, what stays and what goes. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm trying to get better at at selecting material earlier and just having confidence that the, the material uh, that I've already, I already got is good because it makes things so much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, but, but at the same time, like I said, you know, the immersion is, is very forgiving. Yeah, we talked about immersion journalism. Uh, I want to talk about another story you wrote for Philadelphia um, earlier this year uh, that was very different from uh, the Carl June story. And this one was about a bartender uh, in Philadelphia by the name of Fergie Carey. Um, I hope I pronounced that right. Fergie, yeah. Can you talk about that story Um, and I guess the reporting for that? I guess that was immersion reporting as well. Yeah, so I drank with this guy. I drank a lot with this guy. Uh, Fergie Carey is a bartender. Um, uh, he owns a number of bars in uh, downtown Philadelphia. He's been there forever. Um, he's kind of a kind of an iconic uh, character in the city. He's the kind of guy that if, if you go to one of his bars, you will see him at the bar. Uh, you might see him behind the bar. You might see him sweeping the floor. Um, and you you probably know Fergie Carey if you've been in Philadelphia for any length of time because he he seems to have a mental Rolodex of uh, thousands of people, which is, you know, one of the big keys to his success. But so the idea, the idea of the Fergie Carey story was just to do kind of like a fun, immersive piece on, uh, on a Philadelphia character. And it, it turned out to be, um, basically built around a night of, uh, a night of intense drinking with, uh, with Fergie, uh, which wasn't done for any kind of like a gonzo journalism reason. Uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm not into that, uh, style of reporting at all, but, uh, you know, when in Rome and <laughs> Fergie is a, uh, is a reveler. He's a, he's, his wife told me he's essentially a professional reveler. And so if you're writing about a professional reveler, then you have to go 
revel with him and it's also impossible not to not to drink a lot uh, when you're around him because he is so um, good at anticipating your needs. I mean, every time I uh, I turned around and my my drink was uh, even slightly depleted, you know, there would be a new a new drink right there, and sometimes I couldn't even tell how it had gotten there. And then I <laughs> then I would just turn around and there was Fergie standing against the wall, uh, winking at me. You know, he's like a cat. Um, so, uh, so, you know, that was a fun story. I mean, he made fun of my immersive technique. He, at one point he looked at me and, uh, and, uh, we, we were both, uh, had been drinking at that point. And he looked at me and said that, you know, this was like, uh, war reporters embedding in Afghanistan. And of course it's not like that at all, but he, he thought that was, that was very funny. And, uh, and for the rest of the night, he would, he would just look at me and say like, Afghanistan, you know? <laughs> How, how do you take notes on a night like that? Uh, my notes are, are uh, horrible. Uh, I mean, they're, they're basically unreadable. Um, they, uh, they, start, they, start, they start readable, and as you go through the notebook, they, they, become, uh, they become like child's writing. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's like large, large format words, <laughs> single, single sentences that take up a whole notebook page. Uh, and and references that I that I only vaguely understood later later on, uh, and I, I think I included I included one or two in the piece just just to give the flavor of of my you know drunken forgetting as as the night as the night wore on, um, but uh, but yeah there was no opportunity to uh, tape record or or anything like that the bar was too loud so mm-hmm. it was. It's just the idea was just kind of experience, try to experience what this guy's life is like, and uh, you know, write about write about a slice of it. Do you traditionally tape record your interviews? I it depends. I I um, I type I type about uh, ninety words a minute. So I I, I when I can I type interviews uh, live because then I don't have to transcribe them later, which is which is irritating. Um, so if I'm, if I'm just across the table from somebody or we're in an office, I, I type, uh, unless it's a situation where, um, you know, there's, there's some sort of a PR person is sitting in, which doesn't happen, happen often, but it does happen sometimes, or, or there's some legal concern. I, I tape record then, but I, I, otherwise I, I try just to type if, if I'm on the move and somebody is moving, um, then I usually try to tape record so I can capture their speech as, as they are in motion. Uh, but I really try to use the tape recorder uh, as little as possible because I, I hate transcription. Right. Yeah, I made my students do a 30-minute interview and then made them turn in a, transcri- a word-for-word transcription last spring, and they hate me now. So. Yeah. Um, but it's a good practice <laughs> for them. So. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, transcription is uh, – it, it, it teaches you a lot because when you, when you transcribe an, an, an interview – um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's really, you realize that when you're, when you're typing, you're probably not getting it exactly, you know, because transcription takes so long because you have to go back and back and back. And then you find that you're, even as you're transcribing the, the typing, you make, you make errors. So you have to go back and back to get it right. So, you know, um, it, I, I guess it, it, it probably is the way to, to make it the, the most accurate, but a, a lot of the times it's just, uh, it's just not practical. And when you need to work quickly, uh, you can't do it. Right. Uh, let's talk about Ingenious, um, a fantastic book with some great characters uh, in it. Um, when did you first get interested in this subject and, and take us through the process of, uh, I guess, idea to book that will be coming out on November 5th? 
Sure. So Ingenious's uh, book about inventors and cars. Uh, I should say first that I'm I'm not a car guy. Um, I I used to look at car magazines with my with my father, uh, Road and Track and uh, and Car and Driver. But I basically that was forgotten everything that I learned from those car magazines. And uh, today I'm 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 basically the average driver, right? I I drive a little uh, Honda Fit. I, I expect it to work every time I turn the key. I don't have a lot of patience for weirdness or radical design. Uh, I, I just expect it to work. Um, at the same time, paying for gas is is not fun. And I think now, when you when you go to the to the gas station, you have this knowledge that when you fill your gas tank, you are degrading the environment by degrees. You know, you're putting 20 pounds of carbon into the atmosphere for every gallon of gas you burn, and I, I feel I feel guilty about that. There's a there's a guilt there, and so, um, you know, I, I am interested in, in more fuel efficient cars. And when I when I started reporting the story in, in 2010, um, basically I, I saw a uh, article in the local newspaper in, in Philadelphia about a team of high school students at an inner city high school who had an after school club making uh, hybrid cars, and I read in the article that they were enrolled in a contest to win $10 million to make a super efficient 100 mile per gallon car and that they had already beaten a team from MIT. And so when you read an article like that, you make a phone call. And so I called the manager of the team. She invited me down to the garage. And as soon as I walked in the garage, I knew that I had stumbled onto something uh, very cool. You know, it was in a lot of ways, the garage was uh, like something out of the 1950s. You know, there was, there were uh, all these dusty racks of parts, and there was a, 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 an ancient sign that said, all, sh all shorts and skirts must be worn knee length. And uh, at the same time, there was this archaic, archaic feel. There were also these two um, very futuristic-looking hybrids of completely original design. Um, and uh, the more time I spent there, I kept going back, and the more time I spent there, the more it just seemed to me like... Um, the idea of the contest was completely legitimate and valid. The idea was that the major automakers weren't really doing anything big about fuel efficiency. They had kind of dipped their finger in the waters with electric cars like the Chevy Volt and the Nissan Leaf, but they weren't committing in a big way. Um, you know, and I started wondering why that was. Why weren't cars more fuel efficient? You know, the Model T got about 21 miles to the gallon. And 100 years later, the average new car got 21 miles to the gallon. So, so what happened? And that's when I, that's when I started hanging out with the, uh, with the team from Philly. And through them, I learned more about this um, $10 million prize, the, the Automotive X Prize for a super efficient car, the idea of which was really to, um, you know, to give the little guy a chance. The big guys had already had their chance. Uh, you know, the, uh, General Motors had, had gone bankrupt, uh, Chrysler. And in a broader sense, you know, this was 2010. Big elite institutions in America had, had really let us down. And here was a contest that seemed to uh, champion the little guy. You know, they explicitly said, we don't care who you are, uh, uh, what you've done before, where you went to school. All we care about is the quality of the car. Um, and that appealed to me, this, this kind of contest that would champion the little guy. You know, maybe there was some, someone out there in a garage uh, who had who had some idea, maybe a crazy idea, but an idea with merit, and this was their chance to uh, prove it to the world. Is there a point when you knew that you had more than just maybe just what 
maybe one long form story that you had something that was definitely book worthy? It's probably when I met a guy named Oliver Kutner. Um, sometimes you meet these people and uh, there's a moment, there's a moment when you get hooked, right? Uh, you go in thinking it's, it's going to be a story and then you, you realize that it's something bigger. And for me, that really, that really starts with character. Um, you know, there's a moment when all you want to do is spend more time with this person and learn more and more about their work and why it matters and, and why they do it. Um, I'm sure you can relate to this, Matt, right? Like your, your horseshoe pitcher story. Yeah. There's, that, there's that moment where you describe his bag of horseshoes resting against the washing machine, right? And inside are all these horseshoes with the blue paint that's faded from where they've knocked against the horseshoe post for all these years. Right. And I, I, don't, I don't know, like me, me, was, for you, was that, was that the moment when you're like, I, I, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, that, um, that, that's the Alan Francis piece, the one that I wrote for the dispatch. And yeah, he was he was phenomenal when I first met him, and I knew that I was that I just wanted to hang out with him more, uh, and just like pitch horseshoes with him in his backyard, um, and yeah. let him teach me how to pitch horseshoes. So. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you just want to be there with that person, and and for, for me, uh, in Ingenious, the guy was Oliver Kudner. He's a a real estate uh, developer from from Virginia. Uh, German-born, uh, fiery, fleshy, uh, kind of a mad German, um, and just a, just a really a force of nature. He's one of these one of these incredible salesmen who can who can hook you for life if he just gets two minutes of your unfocused attention. And I've always had sort of a soft spot uh, for people like that. And uh, I remember the first day that I went to Oliver Kuttner's w- workshop in Virginia. Uh, one of the first things he did was he, he, he told me to hold out my hand and he put a lug nut in my hand and, and he like beamed at me expecting that I would, I would, uh, I would get the significance of this lug nut and it just looked like a lug nut. But, um, he told me it was a $65 lug nut, you know, a lug nut is like the most humble car part there is. It holds a wheel onto a car and, and, uh, and, and Oliver, he just wouldn't stop grinning about this lug nut and, um, and, uh, I eventually learned that the lug nut is kind of the kernel of his entire philosophy. Oliver is a guy who, uh, wanted to win the X prize by making a car that was extremely light, extremely light and extremely aerodynamic and so light that you could literally push it across the floor with your thumb. Um, and, and I just, I just remember myself holding the lug nut and looking at him with this look in his eye and, and thinking that this guy has been waiting for, uh, decades for someone to come and um, and take him seriously and listen to his ideas and um, you know everything that he was telling me seemed completely legitimate lightness aerodynamics it was all very um, ungadgety and, and cool to me it was all very basic you know second law of motion the less less uh, mass uh, the less force you need to accelerate it and uh, you know it's a cardinal virtue of transportation going back to the to the dog sled and the covered wagon. And it seemed to me like, like not only had Oliver hit on something uh, very fundamental, but I could just tell talking to the guy that he would, um, he would destroy his entire life to win this contest. And uh, once, I, once I figured that out, I, I knew that I needed to spend as much time around him as possible. Yeah, there are those people that you come into contact with, with when you're a reporter who are just so enthusiastic and they just love what they do so much. And especially those people who have never gotten the chance to talk about what they love, um, that as soon as you show up, they're, they, they're going to be so happy that then you just, as a reporter, you want to be around them. 
Yeah, well, they're, you know, they they've been they've been waiting uh, for to some degree. You know, I mean, people people love to tell their stories, and uh, Oliver, I think, was a guy who had been he had been stockpiling big thoughts for years and years, and he had no place to put them. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, a reporter was there holding a tape recorder in in front of his face. And it was like everything was coming out at once. It was like a fire hose. It was, you know, I mean, I remember there was a moment where he was he was talking about uh, the price of copper, and then he was talking about why people ride so many bicycles in China, and then he was jumping back to another topic. And I had no idea. I was really confused uh, when I when I was when I was first hanging out with him. And I think that's a hallmark of this kind of reporting is that the first meeting with somebody is just going to be overwhelming um, and confusing. But you you take as much string as you can. You sort it out later. Um, the key thing is just making that connection with uh, with a source, with a subject, and like you said, um, just finding somebody like that. It's a gift. It's a gift when you do. And uh, I remember driving home from Virginia, uh, just convinced that there was there was a book in this. That's great, uh, Jason. Are you working on anything right now that you can tell us about that we might be seeing sometime soon? Sure. I'm working on a, a couple of pieces for Grantland. Um, uh, one of them is about a, uh, a sort of a legendary uh, marijuana cultivator. Uh, I'm not sure I want to say anything more about it than that. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm working on a piece for Wired about a malaria vaccine that uh, was in the news these last couple of weeks. Um, there was a, a paper published in Science about some very exciting results on this malaria vaccine. It's an intravenous vaccine, and it protected 100% of um, patients against malaria, a small number of patients, um, in a trial. So uh, I, actually, I actually know the, the guy who, um, who designed the vaccine and has been advocating for it for decades. He's, he's kind of like a Carl June type character, very driven, uh, very passionate, and uh, has had skeptics telling him for years that, that he couldn't do this. So he kind of has a chip on his shoulder, and those, those uh, types of folks make great characters. Um, so that should be coming out in Wired um, either later in the year or, or early next year. Great. That sounds awesome. Uh, looking forward to reading them. Jason, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Matt. This was fun. We've been talking with Jason Fagone, a contributing editor at Wired Magazine and a writer at large for Philadelphia Magazine. Fagone wrote the story, Has Carl June Found a Key to Fighting Cancer? in the August issue of Philadelphia Magazine. His book, Ingenious, A True Story of Invention, Automotive Daring, and the Race to Revive America, will be released by Crown Publishers on November 5th. Join me in two weeks when I talk with Janet Reitman of Rolling Stone Magazine. Reitman wrote Jahar's World in the July 17th issue of Rolling Stone. The story profiled one of the two brothers involved in the Boston Marathon bombing. You can download Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or find links to all our episodes at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry the Podcast is also now available on Stitcher Radio On Demand. Stitcher is an award-winning free mobile app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows on demand. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Gangry Podcast. That's at G-A-N-G-R-E-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. We also have a website. It's www.gangrythepodcast.com. 
Gangry the Podcast is produced in the studios of WRDL 88.9 at Ashland University and is a production of the Journalism and Digital Media Department. Our intro music comes from Noah Heyman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.